You're listening to the Writers Forum. I'm your host, Mike Tusa, and today I'll be speaking with author Bryn Turnbull about her new book, The Paris Deception. Ms. Turnbull is a writer of historical fiction, and her debut novel, The Women Before Wallace, was named one of the top 10 best-selling works of Canadian fiction for 2020. She has a master's in creative writing from the University of St. Andrews, as well as a master's in professional communications from Toronto Metropolitan University. Welcome to the show, Bryn. Hi, thank you so much for having me on, Michael. All right, well, look, let, let's start off by talking about writing in general, because uh, we do get you know letters and emails in asking about that. Are you somebody that outlines your stories before you start writing, or are you fly by the seat of your pants, or how do you do it? <laughs> I consider myself definitely a plotter, um, sometimes with two T's, sometimes with two D's. <laughs> I find like I need to know the entire story like I see it kind of as a movie in my head before I start writing and I'll kind of go through and break it down sort of chapter by chapter and from there I'll start writing I think a lot of historical fiction authors actually do kind of tend towards plotting just because there's so much in terms of the research that we have to do and um, personally I'm a lazy writer so if I can do the research ahead of time all of that in the, you know, in the plotting phase, um, I find that that makes for a quicker writing process. Well, when, when you're talking about historical fiction, do you write your narrative and then come back and plug in historical issues or facts at different points, or do you write it all chronologically? I tend to write it chronologically. Um, and I'll, I often, like, I'll use the historical background as sort of the, you know, what the characters are playing off of. So... In order to do that, what I'll do is I'll, I'll build a timeline of everything that's happening, you know, politically, socially, economically, culturally in the time and place so that my characters can kind of interact with that in the course of the novel. All right. So one other question I'm always curious about with historical fiction is how do you know how much history to put in versus the fictional narrative that's part of that story? Well, you know, it depends on the story in question. I mean, my first two novels, I based them both on real life historical heroines. So of course those books were very, very close to the historical record. This one, uh, it's it's using fictional characters in a real life setting and dealing with, uh, you know, a real life tragedy, of course, the, you know, uh, the Holocaust and the the impact of the Second World War on the art world. So for this, because the characters are fictional, like what they do in the book is fictional, but all of the history that sort of grounds the story is all too real. Okay, well, let's, let's talk about that. In the mm. new novel, The Paris Deception, you have two major characters, Sophie and Fabienne, I think, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yep. Um, do you tend in your writing to focus mostly on female characters? I tend to. I would say that I gravitate towards female characters. Um, and I think, you know, in, in cases like this, in the story about, you know, wartime, the female perspective is such an interesting one, uh, I think, because it's not necessarily, you know, being out on the battlefield. How are these characters resisting? How are female characters resisting in their own way? Okay. Well, you know, look, all stories have a reference to time and place. In this novel, The Paris Deception, mm -hmm. we're talking about the time period of 1940 through approximately 44, if my memory's correct. Mm -hmm. um, 
how how do you decide that that's historical fiction as opposed to just fiction? Well, with this book, it came out of an interest in wanting to write a book about the Second World War. That was really my goal uh, with this story was looking at the Second World War, looking at the art world. And so the fiction, like the fictional aspects of the story came out of that historical drive, so to speak. So I knew that it was always going to be based in this historical time period, in this historical context. All right. So during this time period, France, after Patan basically gave up, um, mm -hmm. is under Nazi occupation. Um, and Hitler and Goring are actually, and this is accurate, very much interested in art, stolen art, we might say, uh, yes. for their private collections. What, did you know about that already or did you have to do research? And if so, what type of research to learn about specifically about their interest in art? So I knew that the Nazis had a very sort of very, very keen interest in the art world. And one of the ways that I knew that was through a movie a number of years ago, The Monuments Men, which talks about this group of uh, allied soldiers who start sort of trying to take back and, and track all of these artworks that were looted across um, across Europe from predominantly Jewish families. And, you know, the, the staggering thing to know is that the Nazis stole, it was between 20 and 30% of all of Europe's art um, in the course of, of the war, which is just astonishing. And of that still 100,000 works of art are, are unaccounted for today. So that was sort of like, I knew about that, but I kind of got more and more interested, drawn into this art world when I came across the notion of what uh, the Nazis considered to be degenerate art. So degenerate, you know, using scare quotes around that. Um, degenerate art was basically anything that Hitler, who was himself, of course, a, a failed artist, he, he got rejected from art school at least twice. Um, and he viewed basically anything that was not representational, cubism, uh, modernism, impressionism, art that wasn't just a literal interpretation, classical interpretation of the world, he considered degenerate and he considered it a dangerous form of thinking. And so he took all of this art uh, from all these degenerate works of art from collections across Europe or across um, Germany initially and burned them, essentially, he destroyed them. And so sort of learning about that history and learning about how, you know, what a shocking desecration that was um, really got me interested in this, in this, sort of broader story. Uh, the book itself takes place in the Jeux du Pont Museum, which is where the Nazis, um, using this art commission called the ERR, took all of the art that they looted from Jewish families across um, France, and they used it essentially as their own little department store. They would, um, you know, high-ranking Nazis would come in, growing chief among them, and would pick which pieces of art he liked and have them shipped up and sent back into the Reich. And we're talking thousands and thousands of works of art. Um, so yeah, all of those kind of coalesced in my mind, this, you know, this sort of notion of what the art world was, what was happening in the art world as a result of, um, of this occupation. And it just, it completely sparked my imagination. Well, and you cut touched on a couple of my questions in your answer, but um, it gives you your plot line in a sense mm -hmm. uh, that Sophie and Fabian are involved with, uh, with doing. What did you learn about, 
you know, I knew a little bit about this as well. Certainly knew Hitler was a failed artist. But what did you learn about Goring and his interest in art? Because it seems almost incongruent when you think of the person, the personality of Goring, and then an interest in actually art. Oh, no, I think I think that they're two sides of the same coin. You know, Goering was this larger than life character who was just obsessed with opulence and obsessed with his own sort of building this mythos around himself. And one of the ways he did that was through this art collection that he established using all of this stolen art. And, you know, his, his home, Karen Hall, he would walk around it. He had these outrageous outfits. He was just dripping in jewels, dripping in excess. And he would walk around this home of his where art was just stuffed to the rafters because he wanted to have it. And, you know, the sad thing is at the end of the war, uh, when he realized that all was, you know, that the Red Army was encroaching on Berlin, he had that home blown up because he would have rather that, he would have rather the art to have been destroyed rather than fall into the hands of the Red Army, which is just so shocking when you think about, you know, this guy who professes to be such a, a dilettante and such an intellectual and so cultured. And that dichotomy yeah. really is fascinating. The notion of these people who believe themselves to be these cultured, you know, superhumans yeah. are just absolutely, absolute monsters. Yes, iconic would be a good word. Yeah. So mm -hmm. you did I, I get the sense in the book, and maybe I'm relying on some historical knowledge here, that there was actually a little competition between Hitler and Goring about who would get what pieces of art. That does come through a little bit in the book as well, right? Oh, very much so. Absolutely. Um, you know, Goring was the one who showed up at the museum, you know, at, at this museum, the Jeu de Palme. He was the one who would go there. He would choose the works of art. But Hitler made it known which works of art he wanted. And so Goering had to defer to that a little bit. And, and I think they were in a bit of a battle of wills at certain points over which works of art uh, were being sent where. All right. So let's get back to the storyline. You've told mm -hmm. us a little bit about what was called degenerative art by uh, Hitler and his uh, his uh, henchmen. That gives you part of your storyline here. Sophie works at the museum, at the art museum. Mm -hmm. Now, there's some tension between Sophie and Fabian that has nothing to do with art. Talk, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so Sophie and Fabian are sisters-in-law, actually, um, at serious odds following the death of Sophie's brother, Fabian's husband, Dietrich. And I thought that it would be such an interesting sort of dynamic between the two of them if it wasn't just their sisters-in-law they get along and they decide to do this thing what happens when you throw a hand grenade in the center of that relationship and still they have to decide to work together and still they have to trust each other in this world where trust was not a given so that really really intrigued me um sort of building those two characters around that central trauma and that central grief well, it works really well. And I think it pulls the reader in that, you know, you're trying to figure out what you would do, you know, if you had this adversarial relationship, but you needed this person at the same time. So I think it works really well. Oh, Sophie, thank you. Sophie, however, also has a bit of an ethical dilemma, right? And she works at the museum. She can walk away if she wants, but to stay at the museum, she has to almost, she's not a quizzling, but she almost has to be a collaborator of sorts with what the Nazis want, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, Sophie's dilemma, I think, was a dilemma that a lot of 
French people sort of had to grapple with over the course of the war. You know, we can look at the Second World War with the benefit of hindsight and say, of course, we would do the right thing. Of course, we would know what was going on. Of course, we would resist. But the the fact of the matter is we don't know what we would do. And we don't know, you know, at what point does the survival of myself and my family become the paramount question. So for Sophie, I kind of wanted to show that that sort of tension at the start of, of having to decide between her morals and survival. Um, and then being able to realize that she has an opportunity to resist from this position that she's taken right in the heart of essentially this cult, Nazi cultural enclave. And well, go ahead. I'm yeah, sorry. So, no, no, I was just going to say, um, you know, the notion of how do you resist within your own sphere of influence, I think was something that really interested me as well. Right. right? The notion of. It's, sorry, interesting. That's okay. it's interesting that that you give her an option that may have not seemed obvious at the outset. You know, the moral dilemma is I do it or I don't do it. Well, she ends up uh, taking the third path, which uh, is really the heart of the book, and mm -hmm. I think works really well. Did you know that going in, that that was the choice she was going to make? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I knew, I knew that she, I knew that she was not, uh, she was not going to be down for long. Okay. Well, you know, authors will often say to me that if they create a good character, the character helps write the book. Is that been yes. your experience in using this novel, The Paris Deception, with Sophie and Fabian? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I always say that you get to a point in writing where the characters start speaking back to you. Uh, and that absolutely was the case. And in this story, you know, I, Sophie's storyline was the, for me, that was the central driving storyline. And that was the one that I had plotted out, really. That was the one that I knew and I was comfortable with from the outset. Fabian's storyline was the one that, uh, she started kind of taking the pen at certain points and going, no, this is what, this is what's going to happen. This is where I'm going to go. Um, it's, which is always funny. so interesting. It's funny you say that. One of the first interviews I did several years back in the show, the writer said to me, sometimes my characters will just say, no, I'm not going to do that. No, no. And, and yeah. you know, backs off, which almost sounds psychotic, but, but I get it. Right. But you, you live with these characters while you're writing the book. Right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, one of the fun things that I find really interesting is, when that does happen, when your character is saying, no, I don't want to do that. No, I'm not going down that road. If you follow them a little bit further, a few more chapters, all of a sudden it becomes clear that why they're doing what they're doing. And that's where, that's where you go, okay, I'm not the only one writing this book at this point. Like, this is not just me. <laughs> but, you know, to use Sophie as the example, when she first makes the decision, you know, it's not exactly clear to me whether that's her personality. But as the book builds, it's clear she had no other option. This is who she was and how mm -hmm. she would respond to the situation. So I, I thought that really worked well. Now, Fabian mm -hmm. is a little bit different. Fabian's a little bit different. She actually has some choices to make, right, early on, before she meets mm -hmm. Sophie's brother, uh, Dietrich. Um, she had some other choices to make, right? Talk about her. Absolutely. So Sophie, or sorry, Fabian is, uh, it, she was the character that like spoke to me so much, as I said, while I was writing the book. Uh, she's an artist. She's a bohemian. She is, she's left her family home in uh, the wine region of France. She's left her family home and left a sort of predetermined path 
that she was meant to be on in order to pursue this this artistic life. And when she makes that decision, she does so in such a way that she leaves behind quite a, a trail of wreckage. And so for Fabienne, she's living this life. She's had she has this husband. Life is good. She is, you know, she's discovering who she is. She's discovering who she is politically as well as artistically. And everything is going well until essentially the war catches up to her a few months before it hits the rest of France. And all of a sudden she has to not only reckon with what she's going to do now that she is an artist who's considered degenerate under this Nazi term, but also how she's going to contend with all of these decisions from her past that are catching up with her as she's trying to move forward and survive in this in this world. You know, I, of course, I like the character of Sophie, but I'd have to say for me, I identified more with Fabian. You may be able to tell that by looking at the picture here <laughs> with the decisions that she had to make. But, you know, what's interesting yeah. is that she presents a very universal theme to folks who may know nothing about this period of history of somebody who's got some history behind her that she's she's trying to deal with as she moves forward. Um, and I mm -hmm. thought that, again, worked really well. Now, you mentioned Thank this you. a little bit earlier, and here's another character that I want to talk about. Um, in fact, France is still to this day dealing with the issue of collaborators in World War II. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the fact that French women in particular had decisions that they had to make once the Nazis be, uh, became uh, occupiers of at least a large part of France. Fabian has a roommate named Lottie. And... Many choose, many women choose to associate with the German soldiers for what they can get out of that relationship. Lottie is one of those. Was there any, did, did you wrestle with having such a character in the book or did you think you needed that for authenticity? I thought I needed that character for authenticity because this was a decision that a lot of women ended up making. Um, and again, you know, those were decisions that were made for a variety of different reasons. Um, you know, politically, maybe, you know, a lot of people actually agreed with what the Nazis were doing. So, so that was one reason, but another would have been desperation. Um, you know, the ability to get work legitimately was massively curtailed during this period of time. A lot of these women, their husbands had been part of the French army and were now either dead or imprisoned. Uh, they become POWs. And so, you know, what are these women going to do? Right. So I kind of wanted to have, I wanted to put sort of Fabienne at the start of the book is in a similar situation and she wrestles with it. But I, I kind of wanted Lottie to be there as the other side of that coin as somebody who willingly chooses to go into this position of collaboration um, for her own, for her own purposes, because that, that did happen. Yeah, and she, she does strike me as a little bit naive, however, right? She thinks mm -hmm. that perhaps the German soldier she's with is that this is all genuine and that there's an actual future, right? Yeah, he just needs to talk to his wife and then they'll get a divorce and then we'll be right. together. Right. Like, yeah, Lottie, Lottie is a, a very tragic character in that regard. Yeah. She's, but I she's think she's very she probably, naive. She probably represents um, the rationale that a lot of people went through to be collaborators, that they're, you know, whether you, we want to say they fooled themselves or they legitimately believed, um, you know, they they went through this rationale and she she exemplifies that. And I think that's, uh, again, I, I, I thought that she added a historical piece to the 
the novel, at least that I'm familiar with from my historical studies. Now, there's a lot of information in the book on painting and restoration. So I have to ask, are you a painter? No. No? Well, that's No, a I'm a terrible painter. I, okay. I, the best thing I can do is I can paint straight lines on a house. That's so, it. Stick so men and things like that are your specialty, right? <laughs> yes, right. yeah, doodles in the margins. That's okay. what I can do. So um, if you're not a painter, then how did you learn about these things? Because you, you have a very specific thing about how, for example, um, Fabian is able to reproduce some of these paintings so quickly that the paint is dried and, you know, it's it's not a problem because she has a very short turnaround. How did you learn about all of this? Yeah. So when I started writing the book, the the historical forgery that I was planning on basing this book on was um, the work of a Dutch forger named Han van Meegeren, who in 1943 sold a fake Vermeer to Hermann Goering. And he did it by mixing bakelite, which is an early plastic, early thermoplastic, into his paints, dry, ma making the painting and then baking the painting um, in an oven to harden the paint because oil paint can take weeks, months to dry, depending on how thick it is. So initially I thought, okay, well, that's what they're going to do. She's going to use, you know, she's going to use this thermoplastic. And I kind of got to the point of, of diving a little deeper into the research. And I kind of realized, okay, Van, Van Meegeren was forging Vermeers. And Vermeer was painting in, I believe it was the 15th century. Or, yeah, 15th century. And so if I had used that method, it would have it would have aged the paintings too far. It would, they would have gotten too hard because the paintings that we're talking about in this book are like 20, 30, 40 years old. So I had to come up with a different method of, um, you know, of getting these paintings dried really quickly. And I ended up settling on acrylic paint, looking into when acrylic paint was first developed. And it was developed by a German chemist named Otto Rahm in the late 1930s. And, you know, that kind of became my my entry point into into this world. So I I kind of I fudged the dates just a little bit to get acrylic paint into Sophie's hands a little bit quicker uh, so that she could pass it on to Fabian. But it was uh, it was a good two months of, of wrangling and research to get there. Right. It's interesting. I, I didn't have any idea about this and it prompts me to want to learn more. Uh, and that's that's another good aspect of good historical fiction like yours to learn Thank more you. about something <laughs> that's read. Um, and I didn't know when I initially read it, I didn't know if this was something just completely made up or whether no. it was legit, but it's obviously legitimate. And and I think that's great. Now, yeah. not what's that? No, I was going to say it's uh, uh, oh, never mind. <laughs> okay. Now, not all of the characters in the book are fictional. You have, no. for example, Rose Villard. Tell us about Miss Villard, who's an actual person that existed during this time period or that lived during this time period. Yeah. And her role, her role in all of this. Yeah. So initially, Rose was going to be my main character. But as I started going through the research and getting to know her better, it became very clear that she did not want to be the main character of the book. She was like, I'll be in the book, but I'm not the main character. And so Rose had this unbelievably heroic um experience during the Second World War. She was a volunteer curator at the Jeux du Pont Museum. She ended up remaining there once the ERR took it over. And she kind of stayed on in this 
sort of volunteer supervisory capacity where she'd be there to fix the boiler if it was broken. Um, you know, she would be, she kind of was just around. And the reason that the, the Nazis kept her around was because they believed that she didn't speak a word of German. And so Rose was able to stay in this museum and she had a photographic memory. She could keep records of every work of art that passed through that museum, who they had originally belonged to, um, what the Germans had done with them, where they had gone after they left the museum. And she kept this position for four years. She was able to stay in this, mu in this museum for four years undetected. Um, you know, the Nazis obviously knew that she was there, but they just kind of wrote her off as this, you know, kind of dowdy woman who didn't really matter. Unbeknownst to them, she was passing all of this information onto the resistance cell at the Louvre, headed by Jacques Georgiard, who was the head of the Louvre at the time. And so she just was this complete badass. She, like, she got fired four times in the course of the war. She got fired four times. She was constantly under threat of, uh, of being murdered because basically she just annoyed people because she was quite abrasive. And every time she got fired, she managed to kind of wheedle her way back into the museum because the boiler would act up. And she was really the only one who knew how to fix the boiler. And so she was able to kind of wheedle her way back into this museum and into this position of, uh, of I wouldn't say trust, but into this position of where she could sort of be a fly on the wall and see everything that was happening. So uh, the monuments men and, and monuments men and women, they ended up taking Rose on at the end of the war and her work, her records formed the foundation of basically this restitution project that they started. But she's really a heroine in, in all of this. Let me ask you this though, oh, yeah. have, and, and maybe we'll end with this question. When you have a historical novel and you have actual historical figures, and then you have fictionalized figures, how, how do they interact and who affects who in that process? That is such a good question. I feel with historical characters, when you're writing a historical character, you have a responsibility to that historical character to portray them as accurately as possible. And that doesn't mean that they can't interact with your fictional characters, but it means that you need to have done your research so that how they interact with your fictional characters would be in keeping with who they actually were. So in this book, you know, Rose, like all of the characters in this novel, including Fabian's parents, including Sebastian, including Dietrich, all of the characters in this book are resisting in their own way. And they have their own little sort of narratives of resistance that Sophie and Fabian are unaware of. And Rose is one of those characters. So when we see her in the museum through Sophie's eyes, we don't know what she's doing. We're not entirely sure if she's collaborating or what. And that's because I wanted it to be like, like Rose is doing her own thing. She's got her own heroic plot line happening over here that Sophie is barely aware of. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I like with the historical figures, you've got to maintain that. Like you don't, I, I don't want to have these characters doing anything or saying anything that they wouldn't have actually done or said. But um, I hope that if Rose were to have read this book, she could recognize herself in my portrayal of her. Well, you know, I'm guessing, and I interviewed a lady recently, an author late, recently that wrote about, believe it or not, Fred Astaire's sister. And she had combinations. Oh, Eliza. Of, yeah, she had combinations. I love of, her. And, and she said, and I wonder if this has been true for you in the Paris Deception, she said, 
the historical figures and the fictional figures help define each other through their yes. interactions. They help me define each other through their interactions. Is that that's your experience as well? Yes, I would say that's that's very that's very true. Okay. I'm also I'm like I'm about twenty pages into Eliza's book, starring a starring Adela Stare. Loving it. <laughs> okay. Oh, so you know the book. Okay. Yes, all I right. do. I do. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Folks, you've been listening to the Writers Forum, and I've been privileged to speak with author Bryn Turnbull about her new book, The Paris Deception. If you have any interest in World War II, in art, or, or just in a good read, pick it up. Bryn, is there a website or other social media site that folks can go to in order to learn more about you, to learn more about the book and about your other writings? Yeah, so my website is BrynTurnbull.com, uh, and I'm active on pretty much Instagram and Facebook as Bryn Turnbull writes. All right. And Bryn, folks, is spelled B-R-Y-N, Turnbull. All right. Well, Bryn, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. All right. Folks, the music for the show, the intro and the outro is provided by Valerie Hunt Jester. The show is produced by our very own Tyler O'Brien. Tune in next Tuesday at 4 o'clock, 4 p.m., or Wednesday at 5.30 a.m., to hear the next segment of the Writer's Forum.